Um, But we're going to be in chapter 16 of Romans. We're actually going to start in verse 17. So we're going to kind of skip the, I commend you, Phoebe, and um, greet Priscilla, and, and, and greet Mary, and other names that I can't pronounce, and stuff like that. We're just going to skip that so I don't look like a fool. And um, we're going to get right into verse 17. And then we're actually going to do a lot of reading at the end of this study, and it's not even going to be in this book. But I think... Um, It's appropriate, and I want to show you why we're going to do that. So prepare yourself for some reading um, at the end, but we've got a little bit of text to get through before we do that. So um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to start rambling, start praying, and then we'll start um, getting into it and wrap up Romans. Sound good? Okay, it doesn't sound good apparently, so we'll just, how are you guys feeling? (laughs) All right, right, let's pray. Um, God, just um, thank you for this book. We just thank you for Paul's diligence um, to pen it. Holy Spirit, we know that you authored it, but, but pen was, uh, the, the pen was used mightily through the hand of Paul um, to actually write it down. And so we thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you that this book is every bit as applicable today in California as it was then in Rome. And so we thank you for the exhortation. Um, thank you for this short passage that we're going to take a look at tonight. I, I pray that we'd be challenged and we'd be excited at the same time for what it holds. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you enable me to teach. I ask that you enable all of us to learn, as always, um, but not for my glory, not for this church's glory, not for um, anyone's glory but yours. And so, Jesus, would you be glorified in this time? Would this be an extension? Would this be the continuation of our worship? Worship hasn't ended because the band left. The worship is continuing now in a slightly different form. And so just pray that that would be the heart of your people, that we're, we're open, our hearts have been scored, and they're ready to absorb um, what you have to say to us tonight. So we love you, we praise you, and Jesus, I can't wait to see you again. Um, and it's for your glory that we pray all this in your name. Amen. So let me get my water going. So how's it been going through Romans? Have you guys liked it? Two. That's cool. All right. So... <laughs> Not a fan of the Bible, apparently, at this church. It's the wrong church to go to, okay? We look, we teach right through the Bible, and Zach and I have had a great time um, teaching through Romans. It's a big book. There's a lot of pastors. This isn't like, a, a, like, wow, we did Romans, but there's a lot of pastors that wait a long time to teach through Romans. Um, I, I know of one pastor, a very influential pastor in my life, that, that spent, I think, 12 years in the pulpit, um, 12, 13, 14, something like that. And, and, and I remember at the end of his, his preaching ministry, though he's starting back up again, he was talking about not even being ready to touch on Romans yet. Um, it has such gravity. Um, and I pray that Zach and I did a, a, at least a bit of justice to the texts that we looked at. You notice that we didn't go top to bottom every chapter, every time this book could be studied for five years if you wanted to. Um, but I, but I, I hope we got the thrust of this book because there's so much. And I do want to encourage you to go back now, whether you've, this is your first night in Romans, whether it's your last night you've been here all, however, 18 weeks it's taken us to get through it with a couple breaks, um, to go back this week and read through it, right? Like the old crazy practice of reading your Bible. I know that's awkward and, and hard, and people are like, why would I, that's why I come on Sunday nights, so I don't have, let's not, let's not be those people, right? Like tonight, as we go in some, I would, I would hope that, that all of us go back and just take a look at reading straight through it again, so that you can hear Paul all the way through, because there weren't chapters when he wrote it, this was one continuous letter. And so now what's kind of fun to do, how many of you like to, to get to the end of a movie, you understand where the movie goes, but you like to go back because then you pick up on things again when you see a good movie that you didn't get the, the second or the first time through, right? We've all done that. Those are the best movies. You're like, I didn't even see that. I've seen this movie 15 times. 
And I did not get that joke that he made with the thing with the next to the, you know. And we, we, we do that. And so um, I'd encourage you to go back time and time again and go back because this is such a formative book in the faith and he covers so much doctrine, which he refers to here. If we take a look back, I mean, just using the headlines, um, you know, we, he, he talked about, we'll do this because I want to sort of get the broad sweep of the whole book and I'll just use the headlines from my Bible. Um, the, the, the sort of things that he's covered, which has been that, that the just live by faith, that, 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 that there's this understanding that, that God has wrath on the unrighteous, that, that God has a righteous judgment when he pours out his wrath on the unrighteous, that, that the Jews are as guilty as the Gentiles, that, that the circumcision, the old covenant was of no avail. We're under this new covenant that God's judgment can be defended, that he's, he's worthy as a holy and perfect judge. He has the right to judge that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Gentile, male, female, Californian, New Yorker, it doesn't matter. All have sinned that God's righteousness comes to us through faith and through faith alone. That boasting is to be excluded, that Abraham was justified by faith. Even before the law, how was Abraham justified? By faith, so it certainly can't be by the law. That David, we see that David celebrated the same truth, that Abraham was justified even before circumcision. So it can't be religious practice that saves you. It has to be again by faith. The promise of God is granted through faith, that faith triumphs in trouble. That in, that in the death of Adam, we now have life in Christ, that we're now dead to sin, we're now alive to God, that we're from slaves to sin to slaves of God, that we're now freed from the law, that sin has its advantage in the law, which Don McClure talked about a little bit this morning. That sin actually is strongest when we're under the law, because that's when we can begin to put parameters and obstacles between us and Jesus and things we need to add to Jesus' work, or we take things away from what he did, or we have hurdles that we have to get over in order to fully enjoy what he did. That the law cannot save from sin. I say again, the law cannot save you from sin. If you think what you're doing is what saves you, or the things that you are not doing is what saves you, you're sadly mistaken, Paul would say. You're sadly mistaken because Paul, remember, declared that as a Pharisee before the law, he was blameless. It's a bold claim. He's like, before the, before the Old Testament, I'm blameless. That we've been free from the indwelling of sin. And now as Christians, we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. That we have now sonship and daughtership through the Spirit. We go from suffering to glory. We've got God's everlasting love. And then he goes into Israel. He talks about Israel's rejection of Christ and that they rejected God's purpose and that they rejected God's justice. And, that, and then he goes into this, a couple chapters where he talks about God's relationship to Israel. He's not done with Israel yet. They're the root of this covenant. And I've been very guilty of saying like Judaism ended on the cross. It's done. It's fulfilled. It's completed. But the old covenant blends into it, envelops the new covenant. It keeps getting better. It keeps getting bigger. And so we can't just disconnect from the roots of God's promise. Because if he scraps the promise to Israel, he could scrap the promise to us. And so Paul goes into that and, he, t- and he, he talks in chapter 10, he talks about Israel needing the gospel. It doesn't mean that we don't declare the gospel to Jews. Well, they're God's chosen people and Mark said they're, God's not done with them. So let's just leave them alone and go evangelize to other people. He said, Paul in 10 says that they need the gospel. But then he says that Israel rejects the gospel. In 11, he says that Israel's rejection is not total. There's a remnant. There are people that come to Christ now, but I'll tell you this, that all of Israel, all people for all time in all of humanity's history, every single person will stand before Jesus. Even in the tribulation, 
we see that people get saved in the tribulation. Every single person. If you, just, if you get frustrated, like, I just want people to know Jesus now. That, that's good, and I love that passion, and I, and I understand it to a certain extent, but you need to know regardless, every person will stand before Jesus. Everyone will have to say yes or no to Jesus at some point. Paul goes into that. But he says Israel's rejection is not final. He talks about us being living sacrifices to God, that we're to serve God with our spiritual gifts, that we're to behave like a Christian, super practical part in chapter 12, right? Like behave like you say you are. We're to submit to authorities. We're to love our neighbor. We're to put on Christ. We're to, to understand that, that we're in, now under the law of liberty, under the law of love, that we're to bear each other's burdens, that we're to glorify God together. He's transitioning into this exhortation for the church, that we're to bear others, our, each other's burdens, that we're to glorify God together, that we're to now avoid diversive or divisive persons is going to be the last exhortation in 16. We're going to start in verse 17. And I'll, maybe I'll give you away the three points because I told you I just got my, my three points. It's going to be a, a, a cute little alliteration if you'd like, okay? You can write down the words now. I'll show you where they apply. This is the whole outline for the whole passage. It's three verses, three words. Beware, be wise, and be ready. That's what I want to talk about tonight. Beware, be wise, and be ready. I'll show you. In verse 17, it says this. So keep in mind, Paul has gone through all of this doctrine. He's gone, and if you're just like, whoa, that's a whole bunch of stuff. That's why I want you to go back this week and just blow through it. Get through it. Read every single word. See how he's going. He's building this mountain of doctrine. He's building this mountain of doctrine. And at the end, in, like verse, in, in chapter 12, he, he, he's, he's switching back to the exhortation specifically for the church. And this is one of the ways that he, he wraps up the letter is with this. Beware, be wise, and be ready. It says this in verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, note, your, your translation may say beware of, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctor which you learned and avoid them. Beware. This is not just for pastors. This is for the whole church. So a lot of times you, you may put that on us, but you got to make sure that no bad people come through these doors. This is for the church. He's calling all of us to beware of those who cause divisions and offenses. Your translation may say obstacles that cause division and obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you learn. So my first question is, which ones have you learned, right? It's, it's not that tough. I was a comm major, not that bright, okay? Where are my comm majors? Who picked their major based on no homework, right? <laughs> right my comm department's hard. No, it's not, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm not that bright, but he says, look, beware of those that are going to set up contrary doctrines and obstacles from the doctrines which you've learned. So the question has to be, have we learned doctrine? And doctrine's not a bad word. Some of you are like, oh, that stuffy D word. Doctrine comes from the French word that means doctor, Again, not that bright, calm major, okay? Didn't take a word study. Took about two seconds on Google, figured that one out. So doctrine comes from the word doctor. Doctrine heals. Good, proper, Jesus-centered, gospel-centered doctrine heals. It heals the Christian. 
Look, good doctrine is divisive for sure. Because it draws a line in the sand. It says Jesus or no one. Well, that's divisive. I know. But for the Christians, it's a healing moment as well. So the question is, have you grappled with the doctrine that Paul has presented in this book? If me blazing through that list of head, you're like, did we talk about that stuff? Like, where have you been? Right? That's why I want you to read this book. I want you to go back through it. Read it again. Have we learned this doctrine? Because what he says is going to happen is people are going to come up and set up things in opposition to it. But you have to know what we stand for before you can realize when people are setting up something in opposition to it. Christians spend so much time figuring out what we're not for. Right? Like we have that list in our phone. Oh, this, I, I'm not about this or that or I can't do this. Or, and Right? You ask Christians, what are you for? Give me a list of 10 things you're for. I'm for Jesus. What else? The Bible, right? (laughs) Like, what are you for? I'm sick of Christians identifying with what we're against. Well, we're not that. Okay, but what are you? What have we learned? What doctrine do you presuppose? He says, because people are going to come up and set up obstacles and things in opposition to that. So you have to understand where you stand. But I'm going to give you a couple ways to to fend this off here in a second. But he says this in verse 18. He says, for those who do such. So people are going to come into the church. And here's how it's going to happen. They're not going to get up on stage and say, this guy's not telling you the truth. You know what they're going to do? They're going to sit right next to you. Right? Some of you are like. They're going to come right in. They're going to sit right next. They're going to serve maybe alongside you. They're going to be in ministry at time. But at some point. At some point, it's, it's, they can't help themselves. They're going to start. I'm not talking about healthy criticism. I'm not talking about theological discussion. We, we understand there's some things that Christians can disagree on. Do we baptize babies? Do we only baptize adults? Non-salvific things, things that aren't, you know, part of the five essentials of the Christian doctrine. But at some point, they're going to start saying, hey, hey, what about that thing he said? They're going to start slithering their way. Like, can you believe he said that? He's not qualified to be a pastor. Wears a t-shirt when he preaches. It's crazy, right? They're going to start slithering their way in. I could go into a list of ways that they cause division. We just need to know that it will happen. At some point, there will be people within the church, seemingly a part of the church, that are here to start causing division. And they're going to focus in on one group particular. Did you know this? Do you want to know if you're a part of that group? says this, for those who do such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words, see, they're not going to be jerks. That's the crazy. Everyone could just like discard a jerk, right? That's easy. We do that all day long. They're going to come in with smooth words and flattering speech and deceive the heart's of the simple. Now, simple doesn't mean that you're dumb. Simple means the idea behind the original word is that you're simply young in your faith. They're going to go after the young in faith. Is that you? Now, there's no biblical definition, but I think, again, as I challenged us to do last week, I think if we're introspective, 
You've got to take a look at your walk. You've got to take a look at your process of sanctification, where Jesus has you, where you're going. If, if, if it was just a 50-50 scale, like mature in my faith or relatively new in my faith, and that could be 10, 15 years. It's not a timetable, but you've got to know that for you. If it was just two buckets, would you put yourself in mature or would you put yourself in quite possibly young in the faith? And again, you could be 80 and young in the faith. You could be 15 and mature as heck. You could be like, Zach, I can't stand the kid. He was like preaching like at 17. He was like Billy Graham. I'm like, you're obnoxious. <laughs> Love you, Zach. <laughs> right? But we, I, I saw maturity in him at a, at a young age. doesn't mean he's better than anyone. But they're going to come in for those who are younger in the faith, perhaps not as solid in their conviction. And, and just look at what Paul's just done. What has he done? He's just ripped through 15 chapters of doctrine, right? So it's not like he hasn't done his diligence to present the things that will guide you and help process you into maturity. But there are still some that are, that are Im, more immature in faith and not in a worldly sense, just younger in the faith. And that's who those people will come against. It's great for me. They're not going to pick on me, right? You've seen me up here. Like, no one comes up to me and, like, wants to confront that often. Like, well, you're so wrong, genius, right? Like, I've just, look, I've got, as a preacher, I don't receive this a lot. We get other sorts of criticisms. But this is honestly something that you're often going to deal with that we don't even see at times. They're not going for us. They're like, well, that guy thinks he's got to figure it out. That's not an easy target. They want to go for those easy targets. And so you just have to beware. But I want to give you something, at least three quick points on how you can refute this, how you can work against this, how you can put that off in a, in a humble way if you believe that this is happening. Because what happens is people will come up and start to set up things that are contrary or things that are obstacles. Okay? So how I want you to think about this how I want you to process when this happens is very simple. If they come up and say something, and again, I, I can't think of like a great example. Maybe I should have prepared a little better for that. But when they come in and say, look, you, you, th- there's a verse in the Bible where it says that, that you, know, you, you must be baptized to be saved. It's, there's a connector there. So they come in and they make, this massive, they make this massive theology out of it. Come in and say, look, did you know that you have to be baptized? Like you're, you're not saved unless you're not if you're, if you're not baptized, okay, which is, is crazy because Jesus said to a criminal on the cross who was not baptized, you'll be with me in heaven today. But notice what I just did. What did I do? I went to Jesus first. The first way I want you to guard yourself as you're being aware of this is say, how does it relate to Jesus? When they come in and want to cause division, did you hear what he says? says what does this, how does this relate to the person and the work of Jesus? I want you to start there. You'd be surprised 98% of the time that ends it. 98% of the time, that ends it. It says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 5. I love this verse. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought. We take captive every thought. Someone said, did you know this? Did you know that people that aren't baptized aren't saved? You take all these thoughts, anything that they're saying that you've got an inkling, you're like, you know what? And that's why I want you to be humble because Newsflash, sometimes you are wrong and you didn't know stuff. 
But if you've got an ink, I think this, this is divisive. He's, this is gossip. This is backhanded. This is usurping church authority. This is, sounds like a little bit of legalism, sort of like I've got to do something to get what Jesus did. It sounds a little bit like he's, I've got to add something to what Jesus did or what Jesus did. A little bit of it needs to be taken away. Right? Like Mormons talk about saved by grace. They talk about Jesus Christ is our savior. Right? But it says in the book of Mormon, it says, unless you're pure, his grace is not sufficient. So you stand there with a Mormon and you say, look, are you pure? Are you perfect? You 100%? Are you clean? No. Then the, guess what? Grace isn't sufficient for you. Because what they're doing is they want to add, like, no, Jesus is everything. He's totally savior. But on top of that, you have to be pure. Now they're setting up something contrary to what Paul has laid out. Or they're taking someone, something away. No, Jesus died for the sins of mankind, right? We get it. But when they say mankind, what he meant is only the church, not the world. Now they're going to take away from it the all-encompassing sacrifice, the all-encompassing atonement. So whether they're adding to Jesus, whether they're taking away from the personal work, whether they're setting up an obstacle, look, if you just get over this, then you'll enjoy the entirety of what Jesus did. They give you a little something, a little backhanded comment. You, I, just, I, I want you to start by saying, how exactly does this relate to Jesus? I'd also be able to challenge you as well. When you make claims, can you connect it to the person and the work of Jesus? That's my challenge as a pastor. I'll teach you this whole book. There are 66 books that are about Jesus, even the Old Testament. My job is to show you that Jesus is the only hero in this book. 66 chapters declaring one thing, Jesus is king. So I have to connect everything to Jesus. I've failed you as a pastor if I haven't. So I want you to put that when you when you're, you're 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 beware and you feel this division, you feel this divisiveness. Something feels contrary. Something feels like we're adding to Jesus's work or we're taking away from it. I want you to simply say, how does this connect and relate to the person and the work of Jesus? Start there. I, I, I'm venturing 98 percent of the time that ends it. If it doesn't, I want you to say, could you give me two or three Bible verses that support your position? Two or three, not one. Because weird stuff, you, you build a whole theology off one verse, things go weird. I learned this from a Christian author at a men's group one time. He said, I always say, I need two or three. One dude with one verse starts a cult. I'm telling you. Two or three verses, now we need to have a conversation about the full counsel of God's word. So I'd say, how does this relate to Jesus? First and foremost, if it is divisive, if it is setting up an obstacle, they're going to struggle with that. After that, I say, could you give me two or three Bible verses? We go to Jesus, we go to his word. His word will never contradict itself. It'll never set itself up as contrary to its own authority. Two or three verses. And look, they may have answers for these. The third one is, come to your pastor for counsel. Come to us. Pastor Zach, myself, Pastor Brett, Pastor Tony, Pastor Rob. Pastor John, come to us. Have them related to Jesus. Ask for supporting verses. And if they've got answers and it still sounds divisive, it sounds like an obstacle, come to us and let us help you through that. Does that make sense? You're not on your own in this. It's not like, hey, I'm a pastor. No one ever comes up and says this stuff to me. Good luck. It's not that. I want you to know that you immediately have that recourse by taking them to the cross, by taking them to the word, and if they still have answers, come to us, okay? And bring that person too. Say, let's go talk to Pastor Mark about it. They'll probably say, no, that guy's a freak. I'm not gonna do it, right? But rarely do they ever wanna be what? Put on display. 
You come before a pastor, that's what will quell. One of those three things can almost guarantee you will quell it. Does that make sense? Is that practical enough? Beware. People will come. Paul says he's written this massive epic letter to the church in Rome, but he still says at the end of it, one of his final exhortations, beware. People are coming to cause division. They're going to set up obstacles between you and Jesus. And when you come to us, Zach and I are going to do one of three things. We're all at the same time. We're going to take you right to Jesus, right to his word, and then evoke the Holy Spirit on the whole thing. We're going to take you, we're going to set up no obstacle between you and Jesus. In fact, some of you want us to. Like, you want to come to us first before you even go to Jesus. We're going to be like, have you talked to Jesus about this? Like, later. Like, no, now, first. Don't set me up as someone that you need to get to Jesus through. We went through a whole reformation to get away from that. No priest mediates between you and God. No pastor mediates between you and Christ. The Holy Spirit now mediates between you and Christ. Doesn't mean that you don't require and need and that pastors aren't called to care for their sheep. But we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't say, let's go to Jesus on this one. Does that make sense? So come to us as your third. Ask how it relates to Jesus. Ask for supporting Bible verses and come talk to your pastor for counsel. The Bible says to pursue unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And that's big at our church. That's big. Pastor Rob grinds that into us, that we're not here to cause division. Look, there's enough denomination, there's enough division, okay? We want unity, but if someone is in here causing division, bring it forward. Don't feel like you have to deal with this on your own, because it will happen. Sound good? So beware. These people do not serve Jesus, they serve themselves, and they're going to prey on those who are younger in faith. They're going to have a couple Bible. They're going to sling some stuff and connect some dots. You're like, I don't know about that. Sounds weird. Ask him about Jesus. Ask him about Bible verses. Come to us and talk to us. Paul says, beware. Verse 19, he says, for your obedience has become known to all. Paul's excited. Why? Because he says, look, beware of division, but he knows that the Roman church has been really good. Isn't that cool? Like the Roman, like in Rome, you guys know anything about Rome? It's like, it's like ancient China, right? Like where the church is right now, where the church is most growing. Did you know this? Where is the church growing the fastest in the world? The Christian church, China. I think I saw some stat recently. They think in, f- in 15 years, China will have more evangelicals in America. Are we ready for that? No, that's our territory. Pfft. You kidding me? Billion people over there with the rapidly rising church, the Christian church. And they've for so long been under the boot of that government, underground. Guys like David Platt, Pastor David Platt would go over there and have to meet in dark rooms underground. And they would come and they would just feed. They said, can you spend 15 hours teaching us the Bible? David Platt's like, I was just here to do like a quick sermon. They're like, we'll spend all day if you'll teach us. Can you come back tomorrow? He writes about this in Radical. Don't read that book. It'll ruin your life. You'll give away half your closet. I did it. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll give away half your closet. I did it. Don't do it. Don't do it. I can't recommend it. You're not ready for it. You're not ready to give away half your closet. Right? He goes over and he says, they just feed on it. They fuel on it. 
right? I got to imagine that the church in Rome was a lot like that, coming out of that heavy persecution, seeing what the Romans had done. There was a fervor. See, the reason Christianity is on the decline in America, two things, I think, because I think we've just been faking it for a long time, but two, it's because it's really easy. I think it's because it's really easy. I, I see nowhere in history where the church flourishes when things are easy. Show me, show me the case study. I don't think we've ever seen a massive rise in the church where things are just pretty awesome. The church's growth has always been under oppression, under the world. And we're seeing that in China. But he's writing to them. He's excited. Why? Because they're, they're hanging on to this. They love this book. They're, they're chewing on this book. They're excited about this book. And I'm like, just try reading this book. And you're like, eh, probably not. Because we're not hungry for it. Like, yeah, I got docked. I get it. Saved by grace and faith. What's the next study? What are we doing next? All right? They have fueled on this Roman church. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't wait to get this letter. They just went over and over and over. Like, you're so excited. Read it again. We're like, do we have to read Romans again? They're so excited. And he encourages them. He says, for your obedience has been become known to all. It was prolific. They loved it. He says, therefore, I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Beware, he said, first of all. Now he says, be wise. To us today, to them back then, beware of those who cause division, but be wise in the things that are good and the things that are evil. What happened in Orlando, Florida, was evil. And the media will do anything they can to use any word except evil. They won't do it. Why? Because it draws a line in the sand. They've got to look for motive. They've got to look for background. They've got to look for upbringing. They've got to look for nature. They've got to look for nurture. They've got to look for religion. They've got to look for this. They've got to look for circumstance. Did he watch a YouTube video? Did he pledge to ISIS? They will not ever declare evil. Maybe they have. Maybe there's some. Maybe that's too broad a brush. But very rarely will, will, will anyone in the media Anyone of the world say that is pure evil. Why? Because you have to then define evil and then there has to be something that is good. For evil to exist, you must have a barometer. You must have something to check it against and that must be good. And so you go into college and say, look, there's no right, there's no wrong, everything's socially constructed. We look at Orlando. We say, regardless of who it was, Could have been a church of Christians, could have been an atheist gathering, could have been a homosexual bar like it was, could have been anything. And he blasts 50 people. It is now the single greatest mass shooting in America. History was made. 27, I think, was the second closest to that from Virginia Tech. It was one thing, evil. It was evil. And he wants us to understand good and evil. We need to be wise on the things that God cares for and decries and, or, and calls to be good, but the things that God declares to be evil in our day. I've got a super short list, but you'll see where it goes. God declares that the things that are good are things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, on and on and on and on self-sacrifice service care love 
things that are evil are hate, discontentedness, greed, unrighteous anger, envy, gossip, slander, on and on and on and on and on. Murder. God declares some things to be good and some things to be evil. Paul says, beware of those who cause division, but I need you to be wise in the things that are good. How would you know what God thinks is good? I do this so often. If only he wrote a book on it. Right? Like, wouldn't that be amazing if the God of the universe is like, here's a book. We're like, I, I want to know God's will for my life. If only he wrote a book on it. Wouldn't that be crazy? Wish God would talk to me. Oh, if only he wrote you a letter. <laughs> I don't get it. I know, right? How do we know what's good? How do we know what's evil? Look, how do we even know? Like, you'll hear some people that will say something like this. I want to show you how to even split hairs on this, how you bring everything subject. You take all thoughts captive to Christ. Some people will come to you and say, anger is sinful. I would say, depends. What do you mean? No, God is a God of love and peace. Then why did Jesus get angry? What, what, what is it? What are you talking about? No, it says that they brought a man to Jesus as he was teaching. He was crippled. The story breaks my heart every time because that guy probably got made fun of like crazy. Grew up with a messed up arm. Kids are ruthless. They weren't any cooler in the first century. Middle schoolers were still middle schoolers. Junior hires were still junior hires. High schoolers were still awful back then. And this guy probably got made fun of his whole life. A cripple, an outcast, seen as subhuman. And they brought him to Jesus. Why? They wanted to see if he'd heal him. Right? And the Pharisees and the scribes are like, oh, do work on the Sabbath. Oh. And the Bible says Jesus looked at them with anger. Anything that Jesus does cannot be intrinsically wrong. Because he's perfect. He's holy. He's God. Jesus looked at him and he was angry. Now, did he go cold cock him in the jaw like I would probably do? No. Because he's better than me. Because he's better than me, but, but, but he looked at him in anger, and then he healed the man. He said, stretch out your arm. But he looked at him in anger. All this is to say that you can't just ad hoc, just say, well, then all anger is bad, because there's a lot of stuff about how the anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. I get that. And there's unrighteous anger, and there is righteous anger. Do you know that? Why was the nightclub shooting wrong? But when God killed people in the Old Testament, it was okay. Anything that God does cannot be intrinsically wrong. Why? Because even in Hebrew, in Greek, even in the English language, we distinguish between murder and killing. Did you know that? Some of you may struggle with the fact that I was a Marine, that I was in Iraq, that I was told by the government that I submitted myself to the government to carry out a mission on the battlefield. Did you know that there's a difference? There is no such commandment in the Bible that says, thou shalt not kill. No Bible verse. Thou shalt not murder. It's different. I'm not doing that to be flashy. I'm just saying that, look, when, when you understand the person and the work of Jesus, when you understand the breadth of Scripture, you can begin to delineate between what is good and what is evil. Murder is evil. Sometimes killing is not. And when it is evil, it's called Murder. Even in the Hebrew language. I think it's, uh, I used to know the word too. It's like um, Tertzak and, and Terahog or something like that. It's two different words, murder and killing. 
Not all war is wrong. I would probably say a majority of it is wrong, but God ordained it at times in the Old Testament. And so if you believe all war is good, you're wrong. If you believe no war is good, you're wrong. But all this is to say, do you see what I'm getting at? I'm, I'm just trying to get to, when you understand the personal work of Jesus, when you understand, you begin to truly take in the word of God, you can begin to delineate between this nonsense. You can begin to see the buckets of good and the buckets of evil. You can declare those things. Why? Because God first declared those things. You don't have to rest on your own authority. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. My name means nothing in the annals of history. Nothing. Not because Mark said so, because Jesus did so or God said so. That's how we begin to separate. So he says, beware. People are going to come in and try to cause division. I need you to be wise on the things that are good and the things that are evil in your day. Beware. Be wise. Especially if you're young in the faith, take that extra precaution. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Verse 20, and, God, and the God of peace, some of you are going to struggle with this, check this out. He's going all militant on this, but watch. He wore a green shirt, he's like really trying to play the whole thing up. It says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Be prepared. Be prepared. This is where I get, this is where perhaps in my own, I start to get really excited at this language. It's just, I'm weird. I'm wired differently than you. Don't hold it against me. I won't hold it against you that you don't get excited about this. I've just seen way too many YouTube videos on sex trafficking to not get excited about Jesus fixing all this at some point. I've heard way too many cases of domestic abuse to not get excited that that will no longer be a thing at some point. That child abuse and rape and murder will at some point be but a distant memory. Why? Because Jesus will solve it. Some of you say, why not now? You weren't saying that before you were saved. You were glad he gave extra time until you were saved, but you're not willing that God would give extra time so that others may be saved. Right? The day you're saved, you're like, bring on Revelation. I'm done. I'm saved. Bring on Jesus on the horse, right? I did. It's like, once I learned of that, I'm like, well, what are we waiting for? Let's do this. But then I've seen people come to Christ, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm glad God's patient. I'm glad they're going to be in heaven with me. I'm glad the tribulation wasn't 10 years ago. I still long for it, but I understand that his patience is one of his greatest virtues because he was patient with me. And it says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. It is precisely because he is a God of peace that he must make war on his enemies. So you struggle with that. You, you've bought into kumbaya Jesus, pacifist, turn the cheek in all scenarios. He did say that, but you've taken it out of context. So you've taken a whole theology from one verse. Turn your cheek to your enemies. I know. But precisely because God is a God of peace, he must extinguish his enemies. Or there could not be peace. Do you see that? Blessed are the peacemakers. God will make peace, whether his enemies like it or not. He will make peace. 
peace, because he is a God of peace, he will crush Satan under your feet. You need to know that, that when I said, why under our feet? I thought it was under his feet. This is the call. Jesus says, you are going to reign with me in glory. Did you know that? That we're going to be co-heirs. In heaven, we're going to be co-reign. In heaven, we're not going to be Jesus. But his enemies will be under our feet. Jesus will kick his feet up on the backs of his enemies. It says he will make them his footstool. This this excites me for one reason. God will end all the brokenness. Jesus will come back. Be prepared. Be prepared. Jesus is coming back. When Zach started this series, the very first sermon, He talked about us choosing this understanding of set apart for the gospel. He took a look at the word set apart. It's actually the derivative. It's where we get our word for horizon. He challenged us to have new horizons, to see above what the world would want us to focus on, to go here with our view of things. Here with our view of God's glory. Here with our view of God's righteousness. Here with our view of his grace. Here with how he lends his righteousness. He he gives us his righteousness by faith alone. That we would see ourselves freed from sin, not under sin. That we are free from the law. We're now in the law of liberty. And we call for this new horizon. This higher view. And what I want to do tonight in close. Now that we're. Understanding we're called to beware of those who cause division. That as Christians we're called to be wise in the things that are good and the things that are evil. I want us to be prepared for what's coming. Dare I say, I want you to be excited. Because is, is Mike Balicki in here? This would happen because he laughs every time I reference Revelation 19. It's an old joke. I've gotten away from it. I don't do it every sermon like I used to. But I used to talk about Revelation 19 a lot. I haven't done it in a while, so I feel I'm at liberty to jump into it a little bit here. Do you guys know how it all ends? Right? Because we're like, I just wish I knew the future. You know what the, the sweet thing is? If you believe the Bible, you do know the future. Right? You don't know who's going to win the championship in whatever sport you follow closest. But I will tell you, I can guarantee you word for word, exactly how this whole war is won. The whole thing, sex trafficking, prostitution, child abuse, divorce, pain, suffering, cancer, all of it. I can tell you exactly how it ends. You don't have to turn there. Years ago, I did a study word for word through the entire book of Revelation. And I realized that a lot of churches simply refuse to teach through Revelation. I've joked that it's like a Spielberg movie on crack. (laughs) Steroids is maybe better. (laughs) Hollywood couldn't do this thing justice, right? And and I've told you I'm pre-tribulation. Like I think the church gets raptured before all that. Most of it's selfish because I want to be there with popcorn watching this go down. (laughs) Here he comes. (laughs) Oh, he's got the white horse. (laughs) You better hurry and repent. (laughs) 
Because here's how it sounds. If, 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 and I just want, I want you to be encouraged. Not as in a weird way like I'm, you're like, this guy's way too hopped up about Revelation 19. But you know why? This, this is the foundation for so much of my hope. Personally, the, the whole gospel is my hope. But the fact that it's not done yet is truly a source of comfort for me. I'm toying with the idea of getting into some, some missions work with sex trafficking of minors. It's going to tear me apart. I got kids, but that's precisely one of the reasons I'm, I'm looking at doing it. And, and I'm getting ready to possibly walk into what I would say is arguably one of the darkest things in our world. And it's going to tear me apart, but I know how it all ends. It says, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Some of you don't know that heaven kicks off with a worship ceremony, a worship service. Some of you think this is cute. Not many of you see it as practice. I like music. You don't see it as practice. You don't see it as a battle cry. You don't see it as how the entire ending begins. You're too focused on the music. You're not focused on on the Messiah. He starts with two things. He starts with a worship ceremony, and then he goes into a big wedding dinner. Do you know that? That's what we're practicing for at weddings. He says, they'll be singing hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her blood of his servants shed by her. This is the fall of Babylon he's referring to. Again, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And there are 24 elders and four living creatures. They fell down and they worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were a voice of the great multitude as the sound of many waters as the sound of many mighty thunderings saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It's a worship ceremony. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Be ready. Be ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, this is John writing, Right, blessed are those who call to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. It's an angel. I am your fellow servant. Angels are so miraculous that, that, that John fell on his knees and began to worship him. And the angel says, No! No, old man, get up. See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened. This is actually, whether you believe it or not, this is, I can declaratively say, this is going to happen. 
heaven will open up. And behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, in righteousness, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So we struggle with this language. I'm not detracting one bit from what Jesus said on his earthly ministry. We're called to love. We are called to turn the other cheek, called to pray for our enemy. But you need to know how it all ends. Jesus comes because he is a God of peace. He must make war on his enemies. He says in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And get this, I do this with my boys. This is how weird I am. If you go ask my kids who are here tonight, you ask them what Jesus looks like when he comes back, they'll tell you. Just ask them, say, what were in his eyes? It says, flames. What was on his head? Crowns. What's in his mouth? Sword. What's he wearing? My little boys, my four-year-old, be like a white robe dipped in blood. It's not to scare him. I want them to know how this ends. It says this, it says, in his eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no one knows except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name was called the word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean followed him. Jesus leads. We do it backwards. In Iraq, I was a Lance corporal, just like three up on the totem pole. I led, I kicked in doors. I took a Humvee through a gate, not the general's. It's no disrespect to them, but you need to know that Jesus leads his army. He's out in front of his army, right? And like our grandparents are behind him, like, ah, right? I pray, if you come from a godly legacy, you be like, Grandpa, you look great. Get out of my way, you know? Just trying to keep up with Jesus. Why? Jesus leads in this assault on his enemies. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. So he's clothed in a white robe, dipped in blood, and his name's called the word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on a white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine press of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. Why? Only Jesus, who absorbed the wrath of God, is just to give it back out. Not me. Not you. Not even the Holy Spirit or God the Father. God poured all his anger, all his wrath into, onto Jesus on the cross. And Jesus took all the wrath. That's why God the Father isn't angry anymore. But now Jesus holds all the wrath of God that was poured out on him as our sin. And when he returns to those who say, you know what, I've got this on my own account, he gets to pour it back out. It says he comes to tread the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh, some of you thought I was kidding when I said he has a tattoo. It says, and he on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is it really a tattoo? No, but it sounds pretty gangster, doesn't it? Just like Jesus is like, hey, check out the thigh tat, okay? 
think you read that? I don't think so. Right? Some of you go home and tell your parent, he said that Jesus has a tattoo. I can get one now. Right? Let me know how that goes for you. King of kings and Lord of lords, because I'm going to be hiding from your parents this week. And it says this. It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. It's a morbid scene. Some of you think the Armageddon is a battle. It's not. It's a slaughter. Some of you have heard the battle of Armageddon. A battle assumes there's two sides. There are no sides. There is Jesus and the destruction of his enemies. That's how it ends. Past, present, and future. All the sex traffickers that don't come to Christ. All the sinners that refuse to say what you did is what makes me clean will stand as an enemy before Jesus. And he will say, come gather for the supper of the great God that you may eat of the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. Jesus shows up and some people still say, let's take him on. And the very first sin that got, ca- that got Satan and his demons at the time angels kicked out of heaven was saying we'll be like God they rebelled against God no surprise you rebel against God you lose this isn't because God is a blunt domineering jerk he's he's full of love and grace and peace but I need you to know that when this time comes even when Jesus is here in person people will say no it's not what you've done it's about what I've done and that's what makes us an enemy of God And they went to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he was deceived. And those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image, these two were cast alive into a lake of burning fire with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him, Jesus. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is simply preaching. The sword is his word. It's not a physical sword. Jesus is preaching, and when he preaches to his enemies, they die. Some of you think the Bible's boring. I don't know which version you have. (laughs) They were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's dark, but it's magnificent. It's dark, but it's magnificent. We know how it ends. And then it goes into Satan being bound for a thousand years. The saints reign with Christ for a thousand years. Satan rebels again and it is crushed. And why on earth would God, after binding Satan, let him out? Why on earth would Jesus allow Michael the archangel, by the way, who is is Satan's equivalent? It's not Jesus. Jesus is not Satan's opposing equal. The archangel Michael is Satan's opposing equal. Jesus is king above all. Why on earth would he let Satan out? I won't go into the passage, but I'll tell you this. He proves one last time because he lets him out, and what do they do? They rebel against him again. One last time, Jesus says, I'll show you that the heart of men is wicked. And he lets Satan go, and they still rebel, and then it's over. 
And in verse 21, it says, now I saw a new heaven. I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Sorry, I like surfing too. Then I, John, saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Some of you thought we go off to heaven. How many of you have done this? We leave earth, forget it, light a match, I'm out of here. The Bible says is that we get a new earth. What happens? Heaven comes to earth. New Jerusalem. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God has always pursued people. He did it in the garden. He did it all through the Old Testament. He did it on the cross. He did it in the person and the work of Jesus. He does it now via the Holy Spirit. God has always pursued people. This has always been his ultimate goal is to be with his people. And sometimes we feel so distant from God. So we come to church wanting to feel a little closer to God. But then Lord knows Monday morning comes and we don't feel close to God anymore. You need to know that his purpose, his thrust, his glory will be made manifest when he once and for all comes to be with his people in a new heaven and a new earth. And he says this, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That's my hope. And God will wipe away every tear, every tear, every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. Who's sick of death? Who's sick of cancer? Who's sick of prostitution and trafficking and rape and pillaging and ethnic wars and racism? Who's sick of all of that? Who's sick of, who's ha- sick of having to lock your door at night? Why? Because of sin. He says, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, behold, I will make all things new. And in the original language, all means all. He will make all things new. And the crazy thing is, is that he can begin via the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, he can begin to make all things new in the life of you now. Why? So that people have to deal with where God is going with the whole story. When people see Christians regenerate and become, start the process of becoming new again, here they have to deal with God's narrative of what it's all going to look like in the end. And so God begins to restore people from the hurt now. God begins to restore people from pain now. Some of you cling to your pain because it's part of your identity. Something happened to you a long time ago and I'm sorry, but you're not allowing God to make you new now. It's one of the most frustrating things you see as a pastor. People that week in and week out want to base their identity off something that has happened. I get it. There's a process. There's a healing. But is there a healing? Because the Jesus I serve, the Holy Spirit that I'm indwelled with, wants to cure me of that. He wants to indwell in me and heal and restore that now. We won't be perfect, but we're headed that way. Do you know that? 
Our bodies will fail, but our, our soul is being restored. Why? So people see a glimpse of heaven now. People see a glimpse of heaven now. They don't see religious robots going to church. They see transformation. They see hearts that are being regenerated before their very eyes, and they have to grapple then with a God who's real. And he begins that now, but in the end, it will be so prolific. No death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, because the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said to me, Write these words, for they are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. What are you going through right now? Your hope is in that when you overcome by the grace of God, you will inherit all things. All things. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And he goes in to describe the new Jerusalem. Do you know that heaven is a cube? Anyone know that? It's as tall as it is, wide as it is, deep. It's roughly the length of the East Coast, the height of the East Coast, and the depth of the East Coast. It's probably a lot of stairs, but don't worry, you'll have a perfect body. <laughs> stairs won't feel like the Treadmaster at Goltz, okay? Okay? There's going to be, hopefully, escalators. They've probably figured that out in eternity. I'm hoping for elevators or something. But it's a cube. Did you know that? Heaven is a cube. The Bible describes it. But it says this. In the glory of the new Jerusalem, he says, but I saw no temple in it. There's no church. There's no denomination. There's no synagogue. There's no mosque. He says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need for sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means, by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You need to know that Jesus wins. Whatever you're going through, whatever our nation is facing, whatever another nation is facing, tough as it is, our hope lies in the fact that Jesus will make all things new. For those that are in Christ, we will be with Christ for eternity. There will be no pain. There will be no tears. There will be no suffering. Paul says, beware. People are going to come and try to cause division on this path toward eternity. He says, be wise in the things that are good, declared by God, and the things that are evil, declared by God. He says, be ready. Our hope is not in things of this world. Be ready. Jesus will return for his people. 
He will destroy his enemies. He will make all things new. For those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen? Let's pray. God, heavy though at times some of these passages may be, I pray that that we're excited that the burdens that this world would have us crushed under would be alleviated under the reality that your gospel is active and alive and we know how it ends. It doesn't negate the pain we're in now, God, but it gives us hope for the other side of it. That for those who have given their heart to you, whether in the past or whether tonight, right now before a holy and and, and perfect king who is alive and listening to the thoughts and the intents of every heart here. Whether a confession has been made in the past or it's made right now in this moment before you. Jesus, you say that you make us clean. You say that you're going to make us new. And that for those of us that are written in the Lamb's book of life, we're going to spend eternity with you. So Jesus, I pray as we go into this time of song that it's not watching a band play. It's not watching words on a screen. It's practicing for how we kick off heaven, which is a worship ceremony to you. Jesus, you're active and alive. You're seated on a throne right now. And I pray that this time would be a sweet fragrance to you. We don't know when you're coming, but we're excited that you are. We love you and we praise you. I can't wait to see you again. In Jesus' name, amen.